Oslo, Norway, March 2023. Activists have blocked the entrances of several Norwegian government buildings. The police are removing the protesters, carrying them away one by one. One of the people being taken away by the police is Greta Thunberg, the well-known climate activist from neighboring Sweden. You probably remember her as a girl who initiated a school strike for the climate, what later became the worldwide movement Fridays for Future, young people all over the world demonstrating for the climate. Normally you would also hear the movement chanting in favor of green transition projects with renewable energy, but this demonstration is different. This time Greta Thunberg is demonstrating against a windmill farm in central Norway. And she's doing so alongside Sami people, the indigenous people of Norway, Sweden, Finland and Russia. The thing is that while the Sami people are all for the green transition, they are against the placement of windmill farms on the lands where they herd reindeer. We suggest to green transition, but not to the cost of biodiversity, human rights, and indigenous rights. A green transition needs to be with respect for those rights. This is Jenny Vika Karlsson, leader of the Swedish Sami Confederation. And she really sums up the dilemma in many places all over the world where indigenous peoples live. For instance, the Arctic, the Americas or Australia. Many governments and industries see opportunities for speeding up the green transition worldwide by making use of the often remote areas indigenous people inhabit. This could be through, say, mining for rare raw materials needed for electric cars or by establishing massive wind farms or solar panel parks. But often indigenous populations are not considered or even asked for their opinion. This has been named green colonialism. As a former president of the Norwegian Sami parliament, Aili Keskitalo, famously said, colonialism has dressed up in nice green finery and we are told that we have to give up our territories and our livelihoods to save the world because of climate change. In this episode, we ask how indigenous peoples of First Nations communities can participate in the clean energy transition? How can we be better at balancing the competing interests between the green gold rush and the interests and rights of First Nations communities? I'm Josefine Falkwarz, and you're listening to the Nordic Talks podcast. Let's move from the Arctic region to down under. Australia has all the ingredients for a green industrial revolution. Abundant rare minerals, plentiful wind and sun and manufacturing capabilities. But many of these resources are found in the same places as Australia's First Nations communities. Thanks very much, everyone. Did I just accidentally mute myself? Um, Thanks very much for joining us this evening, everyone. 
This evening, Ebony Bennett from the Australia Institute, which is one of the country's most influential think tanks, hosts an online Nordic Talks event. The Institute wants to explore the policy lessons that Australia and the rest of the world can learn from Nordic countries when it comes to the big economic, social and environmental questions. Tonight, we are discussing the role of First Nations communities in the clean energy transition. And so, the Australians have established a Zoom connection to Jenny on the other side of the globe in northern Sweden. Jenny explains the Sami people's concerns about the pace of the green transition projects on their lands. We believe that the process of, of this green transition that everybody talks about and we are fully aware of it's necessary, but it's going so rapidly that people doesn't really think what it means. And I think one of the biggest problems uh, for us is that the government and the companies are expecting us to, to participate and compete in this market-based economy that we all live in. Uh, but we, what we are actually fighting for is our basic need, food, shelter, safety, uh, and that this is fundamental human rights as well. As a legal advisor, Jenny has long worked on issues related to indigenous peoples and industrial exploitation. That's also the case with another participant in this Nordic Talks event. Um, I'd just like to pay my respects to the traditional owners of the country where I'm talking from. I'm in Nam, down in Melbourne. The man paying his respects here is Chris Croker. He's the director of the First Nations Clean Energy Network, an organisation working to raise capital and help Indigenous people in remote communities benefit from clean energy projects. And those projects are spreading everywhere. In Australia and around the world, there's a lot of developments in um, wind, solar, other types of clean energy developments, and um, that's been happening for a while now. Um, we've seen this um, transition take place, and actually, if anything, it's only ramping up. This tendency is also recognised by Rod Campbell, our third participant. We're certainly not winding them down. Rod is an economist whose work has often focused on the fossil fuel industries. He also looks at how the new clean energy projects affect local communities. I guess the thing that I really hope is that some of those projects and the governance around them can learn from some of the mistakes of the past. In a little while, we'll get back to what's happening on the ground in Australia. But first, let's hear more from Sweden about the role of the Sami people in the clean energy projects there. Are they involved when a green mining company moves in? or solar farms are established? The big issue in Sweden is when it comes to consent. And, and we do have a lot of environmental law when it comes to mining, especially quite hard ones in order to start a, a mining in, in Sweden. But it doesn't still doesn't involve the Sami or the reindeer herding community. It's a, uh, so this is a, a negotiation with the companies uh, are more or less depending on, on the Sami to, to take active part with their own capacity, uh, their reindeer herders. They don't have the economic resources uh, to be a part. It's, it's very unequal uh, when you have a big mining company, a big state-owned mine, mining company with 10 lawyers at the table. Uh, you have engineering, you have whatever. And on the other side of the table, 
at best you have one lawyer. Uh, and you could have two or three reindeer herders, which are very good at traditional knowledge and describing uh, the impacts on, on land. But there is a conflict in Sweden because uh, mainly all of the natural resources, such as mining, such as forestry, uh, such as uh, water turbines, are located on, on um, Sami land. Uh, and of course, there's a conflict of uh, interest of here because um, we need to give up land from the reindeer, the traditional uh, livelihood for, for, for us, but we're not give, uh, getting anything back. Uh, but uh, as a rain, uh, an elder said to me, uh, the reindeer can't eat money, can't eat uh, iron, can't eat stone. In Australia, there have also been problems with not understanding or considering the living conditions of indigenous people. But Chris sees signs of improvement. In the past, you know, there's been a really bad relationship um, with mining, extractive industries and Aboriginal and even the islander communities, um, where basically, you know, there was there was no qualms given to, you know, moving Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders off their land, destroying artefacts, destroying heritage sites. Um, that's That was the way. Um, that, that did happen. Um, what we've seen recently is we've kind of had First Nations groups in Australia actually at least have some rights to have a say <laughs> over activity on their traditional land, um, which... Um, you know, it hasn't always um, worked in our favour to protect um, our um, interests and um, ensure that we're, you know, at least having a say. But in, you know, in most cases recently, at least we're, our voice is getting heard, whereas previously the voice, our voice wasn't even heard. <laughs> so what we're looking to do is actually learn from the, the, the not-so-good lessons from the extractive industries, um, encourage um, the first, um, the clean energy industries to do better than extractive, um, and also at the same time make sure that we as community we're actually empowering ourselves so we actually can be in in control and actually guide these these developments. Another reason to listen to First Nations communities is their first-hand experience with climate change. Often they feel the consequences ahead of the rest of us. We did see changing coming 20, 25 years before uh, a lot of, of the academic researchers. We did see signs in nature. And I think one key is to, to recognize traditional knowledge as a resource, as a source, uh, such as uh, academic uh, knowledge as well. And actually, try to get the government or the specialist that works within the government system to listen. There's a reason that Yeni and her fellow inhabitants on the Sami lands were the first to witness consequences of global warming. Climate change tends to hit first and often also hardest in the high north and in the deep south of the globe. Those of us in it. In Australia, we know even in the last 12 months, we've had these really massively extreme weather events. Um, 
even at the moment, we've got flooding across most of the um, Gulf country up up in um, Queensland and the border with New- with the Northern Territory. Massive amount of flooding, you know, um, highest flood levels of these rivers ever recorded. Um, we've had um, massive flooding across in Western Australia in the Kimberley um, just um, a little over six weeks ago. Um, and then, of course, thinking back to just before Christmas, we had massive flooding. You know, um, I know some of the communities in um, New South Wales experienced one in 5,000-year floods three times in the one year, uh, separate flooding events. So massive amount of, you know, additional rain and um, flooding. But that's, um, you know, with really this chaotic weather and patterns. But then, of course, thinking back just even just a, a couple of years or the year, year before that, we've had massive droughts as well, where which led to these, you know, 2019 um, wild bushfire events that, you know, basically decimated, um, you know, areas of Victoria, New South Wales into Queensland. So, you know, those are really extreme events, um, but they, they are happening and they, I think they're happening, um, you know, they're more extreme, they may be more frequent than they used to be. And this more extreme weather leads to changes in the wildlife. I was, I was actually um, visiting an Aboriginal community just um, a couple of weeks in my line of work and um, one of the things that we were sitting around the um, um, campfire talking about, it's actually, it's actually, you know, similar to um, the um, Swami um um, ex- examples actually affecting the wildlife as well. Um, one of the things that we see is actually the um, the number of um, kangaroos or malu, as we would call it in in our language, um, it's actually fallen away quite a lot. And so, whereas you know eating kangaroo would have been a part of our traditional diet, and even in this modern um, age, um, you know you still supplement what you buy from Coles and Woolworths with you know a bit of um, bush food, and um, but yeah. The number of kangaroos have basically disappeared. Back in the Nordic countries, the concern is not for kangaroos, but for the reindeer. And according to Jenny, the dialogue with the government could be better. From our perspective, I have been glad if I could share with you that the dialogue with the government is moving forward. But actually... Um, we have, as a lot of our sisters and brothers around the world, uh, we have to go to court in order to get our rights recognized and respected. During the last two weeks, we have uh, had a lot of um, activism because the governments in Sapmi, both in Norway, Sweden and Finland, uh, are rapidly speeding up this process being on, on, on this green transition. So, as Jenny said in the beginning, the Sami community is not against the green transition, not even against windmills. It's about where the windmills are put up. If you look at it um, just as a windmill farm, of course, it depending on how big and, and where it's located. If you have a windmill farm located on a mitigation route, uh, it will disturb. Uh, but I think uh, when it comes all together in Sweden, which is a lot of smaller country than Australia. <laughs> we do have a small area, so it's depending on the total pressure from everything uh, and how much the reindeer community has on their land at the moment. Um, reindeer can adapt to some individual of the reindeer, not not necessarily uh, the whole herd, but so it's it's 
it's not a yes or no on that question. It's depending on on where it's located and and the impacts of it. But uh, um, we do have a lot of research on uh, windmills and reindeer herding and um, how it uh, affects. So it's a lot of ongoing research there. So, but any any industry or any pressure on on uh, pasture land could be neither good or bad. Uh, it all comes down to do a, a, a good impact assessment and to talk with the community and, and see the whole, their whole situation. Chris agrees that a holistic assessment is necessary and decisions must be made in cooperation with Indigenous people. If you involve um you know, the local community, whether they are First Nations or I'm, or I'm not, in actually some of the planning decisions to actually put in good good land steward, stewardship and good environmental stewardship from the um, beginning, um, we can actually end up having, you know, great outcomes. You know, we don't, we shouldn't build the wind farm in this location because there's a um, a, a flock of um, protected parrots that live in that area, or there's a grove of, you know, um, in um, old 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 growth forests that we don't want to disturb. So we actually make those planning decisions together. Yeah, but actually, locating the windmill just you know at one kilometer to the to the north, actually the wind resource is just as good or nearly as good or just as good. But actually protect protects all of those environmental considerations and cultural considerations that are that are required. And according to the economist Rod, that way of thinking should be key looking forward. Not only economic perspectives, which has often been the case. I was just looking up one of the one of the first projects I did with the Australia Institute. Actually, uh, I'm an economist, and uh, I was working with some local groups on a coal on a coal mining court case. And I was interested in what Jenny had to say that it, that a lot of the time uh, it feels like it's uh, one Sami lawyer against or one lawyer for the Sami representatives against a, a big mining company. Uh, in Australia, it's not just the community or Indigenous group against the mining company. It's usually the community or the Indigenous group against the government and the mining company. Rod says he's going to read out an example from a court case he was involved in. It's an example of how a mining company describes the impact of Aboriginal heritage on one of its projects. The mines economist wrote... Up to 114 individual Aboriginal heritage sites will be potentially destroyed by this coal mine. The majority of these are isolated artefacts of low significance. However, two grinding groove sites and three scar tree sites are of high conservation significance. Our study found that the community had placed non-use values of on Aboriginal sites. We estimate them at $34 million per impacted site. That's the bad news. The good news was we were going to dig up $2 billion worth of coal. Uh, so the $150 million worth of value that uh, Rio Tinto apparently put on uh, Aboriginal heritage sites was easily outweighed by the coal we dug up and uh, everyone was going to be happy. And I, you know, I guess that's an example of one thing that I hope in you know, as we do have this transition to different kinds of energy projects, that things can be done differently. And I, I hope government departments stop accepting this kind of nonsense about how you know economists might value Aboriginal heritage. 
uh, and start actually doing their jobs and evaluating some of these projects in line with the community interest and in line with existing laws. In Sweden, Jenny would like more than just dialogue. The Samis should have executive power over their traditional lands. I would like in the rest of the world that the government could just step outside the box and, and actually give the management of, of uh, land back to to indigenous and local communities. And I think some of the areas we're talking about that is important for, for, for us are best managed by those who live and live of that land. So... No doubt that when green energy initiatives are rolled out on a larger scale during the coming years, it's important to consider the rights and knowledge of indigenous peoples. One way is improved dialogue. Another is actual representation in important decision-making, especially in areas traditionally inhabited by indigenous peoples. In all cases, it's obvious from what we've heard today that First Nations communities must have a much larger influence on the rollout of one of the most important tasks in the coming years, the clean energy transition. I'm Josefine Falkwarts. Thanks for listening to the Nordic Talks podcast. Check out our website nordictalks.com and meet the people participating in each episode. <laughs>